Psalm 23, one of the more uh, familiar passages in Scripture, was written by King David, king of Israel. He was a little shepherd boy. He was kind of thrust into the spotlight, into the public eye when he uh, kind of unexpectedly defeated uh, Goliath, this big giant uh, enemy of, of the people of God. Uh, he spent his entire career from that point forward, uh, you know, looking after the people of God, defeating their enemies, expanding their borders, establishing peace and security and prosperity for God's people. And so this psalm is written by that guy, King David, and it's written about God, right? It's, it's written by David, about David's God, who God is, what God does, how God takes care. Right? It's written by a professional caretaker, a professional leader and, and shepherd, right? David, is a, his, his job is to shepherd and care for God's people. And he's writing this psalm about how God shepherds and cares for him. How God treats his people, how, how the people of God can trust God and count on him to look after them. So that's, that's uh, what Psalm 23 is, is about. And so we're going we're gonna to read it this morning, and then we're just going to walk through it and consider um, what it tells us about God, what it tells us about ourselves, what it tells us about the nature of, of the Christian life and how we should live in, in uh, response to those truths. So let's read Psalm 23 all the way through, and then we'll pray and we'll get to, get to work. Starts in verse 1. It says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would come here with us this morning, meet us here, speak to us. We pray that you would help us to see your glory and your grace and your your gospel uh, in your word together. God, we pray that you would give us clarity in our hearts and minds, give us humility in our spirits so that we can listen to you and obey you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay. Psalm 23. The, the, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Again, this was written by a professional shepherd, so he is the authority on what a shepherd is, what a shepherd does, what it, what it takes to be a shepherd, to qualify as a shepherd. And he says unequivocally, God is my shepherd. I'm the shepherd of many, originally a bunch of sheep, but now the shepherd of an entire nation. God is my shepherd. God's people are likened to a flock of sheep. God is likened to the shepherd who is in charge. He's, 
He's responsible for them. He takes care of them. He leads them. He feeds them. He makes sure that they stay healthy and, and whole. The good shepherd we read in John's Gospel, the good shepherd is one who lays down his life for his sheep. Right? When, when the sheep hear the shepherd speak, when they hear his voice, they know it and they, they come to him. Right? We are sheep. We are members of the flock of God. God is our shepherd. So, what exactly does that mean? What exactly does God do as our God, Given that God is our shepherd, what does he do in that role? How does he, how does he uh, you know, discharge his responsibilities in that role? He makes me lie down in green pastures. So the first responsibility that God has and that he discharges as a, as a shepherd is that he uh, feeds his people. He makes sure that they uh, stay fed. Sheep graze and eat grass. If they can't find green pastures to eat, they won't eat. If they can't eat, they will die. And so God looks out for his people. He takes care of them by making sure that they have a viable food source. God provides for David. But it's not just that it's not just that God provides for David and gives him green pastures for, for him to, to eat from or for him to lie down in. But the verb is interesting. He, he makes me lie down in green pastures. So, so there's kind of a, it's not just, um, it's not like God's provision for his people, right? Here's what you need. I'm going to make it available to you. And then I'm going to invite you to avail yourself of it should you desire to, to do so, right? It's not as if these are, you know, two equals interacting together, right? Like, hey, I just went and saw this movie. You should go see it. All right, well, maybe I will, maybe I won't, right? Um, this is the, the, it's God makes me lie down in green pastures. He's the one in authority. He's the one who is kind of dictating terms of what's happening. And I am kind of responding to the sovereign authority of, of God. When, 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 our, when our kids were little and they would, no, no, none of our boys would ever want to take a nap when they were newborn. They would just cry and scream, and Jerry and I would know that they need to take a nap, but they wouldn't want to take a nap, and so we would have to put them, we would swaddle them really tight, and, you know, like tighter than you think that you should have to. It's like almost scary how tight you have to make the, the blanket so that their arms and everything is kind of tucked in perfectly, and they feel nice and content, and then you make them lie down in their bed. They wouldn't if you don't do that they won't lie down and they will scream and be discontent but when you make them lie down then they it's like you as the parent know better than them as the kid what they need at that moment and then they go to sleep and they end up feeling better when they when they wake up and that's the that's the dynamic that that David is describing between him and God God doesn't ask me if I want to lie down in green pastures God doesn't ask my permission if it's okay for him to lead me to green pastures. God makes me lie down in green pastures because he knows what I need. He knows what's good for me. And he is the one who is in charge. God is a king, a father, a shepherd. He knows what's best for his people, even when his people don't know or care what's, what's best for them. Right? The shepherd, shepherd leading sheep, right? Sheep uh, might very well have the tendency to wander off into dangerous places where there's wolves and predators. Sheep might have the tendency to wander off into where there's a 
steep cliff that they could fall off of and get injured or, or die. And God is the one who makes them lie down where it's good and safe for them. The idea of, of the sovereignty of God, God being in control, being in charge of my life more so than me, right? The sovereignty of God over and against or in contrast with my own personal autonomy and kind of individual, you know, sovereignty over my own life, that might at first glance seem like bad news. I don't get to be in charge anymore. Someone else is in charge of me. Someone else has to, you know, tells me what to do and I don't get to do whatever I want. But, but the sovereignty of God is only bad news if God's will and God's plan for my life is if my own will and my own plan for my life was somehow superior or better than God's plan and God's will. If God's plan and God's will for my life is good, if God is a good father and a good shepherd who wants what's best for me even when I don't know what's best for me, then the idea of God's sovereign authority over my life and God leading me and and kind of making me lie down where he wants me to lie down, that is good news. If I'm smarter than God, if I'm better than God, if my will is better than God's will, then the sovereignty of God is bad news. But if God's will is better than mine, if God's heart is purer than mine, if God's uh, design and his plan for my life is better than mine, then the sovereignty of God is good news. It's something that we can rejoice, rejoice in. So God makes me lie down in green pastures. God leads me beside still waters. And so uh, green pasture is a necessity of life for food. If sheep don't get it, they'll starve and die. But so is clean water, right? Still, still water that the sheep can go to and drink from is also a necessity of life, something that they need. And if they don't have it, they will die. So God meets that need for his people as, as well. But it's a different verb this time, right? So the first one is he makes me lie down in green pastures, kind of, um, you know, implying that God is sovereign and God uh, can and does and will give us what we need, even if we don't know that we want it, even if we're bucking against it and fighting against it. God is a good father who gives his people what they need. But this time it says he leads them beside still waters. He leads me beside still waters, which is more of an implication of, you know, less so, less so me with my kids when they're three months old and I swaddle them and put them down to take a nap that they don't want, but I know that they need. But this is more of, you know, a dad with his third grade, you know, his third grader, fourth grader who comes home with math homework that they don't know how to do. And, and it would be very easy to say, let I'll do your homework for you, right? I can do it in five minutes. I know how to math. I know how to do long division. Give me like, let me do it, and then we'll, you'll go back to playing, and I'll go back to watching Sports Center sooner rather than later, right? Everybody wins. But, but no, a, a good dad, a good parent would, would, would sit there and help their kid do their math homework. They would, like, let the kid do it, and they would kind of lead them 
the, the right way to make sure that they're learning and kind of figuring it out as they go. So, so the older you get, right, like you start with, he makes me lie down, but then the older that the child is, develops more autonomy and competency and abilities, and it's the parent's job to kind of help cultivate and nurture those competencies and those abilities. And so there's some portion of parenting, some portion of shepherding that is, I'm going to make, right, make you do this. We're about to cross the street. It's dangerous, so I'm going to make you hold my hand. But there's some portion of parenting that is leading, kind of giving kids space to try and learn and fail and learn from their mistakes and then succeed and kind of get better. And so God does both of those. God makes his people lie down when it's appropriate for him to do that. But God also leads his people beside still waters when it is appropriate for him to do that. Because God is a good shepherd. A good shepherd who leads, feeds, cares for, and protects his, his people. So God is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. So my soul, there's, there's some sort of, my soul is in need of being restored. My soul is in need of restoration. There's some sort of deficit about my soul as it is right now it needs it needs to be acted upon by god there's something that my soul needs that i cannot give it i do not have for it, and i need god to provide it for me my soul needs restoration not modification not uh incremental changes it doesn't need to be made uh, slightly better my soul needs complete total entire comprehensive restoration. In Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth, right? The sky and the waters and the land and the light and the dark and the sun and the moon and the plants and the animals, fish, birds, everything. God sees that his creation is good. On the final day, he makes humanity and he says humanity is very good because there's something distinct and special about humanity, right? Humanity is different than all of the rest of creation in that they were made in God's image. They were they were made to reflect God's glory uniquely in a way that no other animal, no other part of creation does. And so human beings made in God's image bear distinct and particular dignity and, and worth because of being humans. Their lives are important. They, they matter. God creates his, the, the world. He says it's good. God creates humanity. He says that they are very good. And so, but then there's, you know, as we walk through the story in Genesis 3, uh, humanity sins against God. Uh, you know, the, the fall, uh, it kind of introduces brokenness and, and sin and pain and suffering and death into the world. And so in the first three chapters of the Bible, we see these two theological realities in tension with one another, in conflict with one another, right? One that we are created in the image of God, created originally very good by God, but two, that we are hopelessly lost in sin, ruined by the effects of sin, that every element of our being, right, has been affected by sin. Both truths in Scripture, right, we are, we are created good by God and, and we are hopelessly lost in sin, and thus in need of restoration. We need God to restore our soul, right? And you'll, there's, you know, you'll, 
you'll see teaching in, in the, the church that kind of emphasizes one of those over the other. And usually, as it does, it starts to not be healthy anymore, right? Teaching that emphasizes that you're created in God's image and God created humanity good and he loves them, but de-emphasizes sin can, you know, you know, become kind of uh, therapeutic and, and, you know, just make you feel a little bit better about yourself, try to be the best person that you can be, try to make the world a better place, right? Or uh, there's teachers that will emphasize sin and wrath and, and de-emphasize the reality that God created humanity good and that he loves them the way that he, that he created them. And so, you know, it can become uh, mean and, and self-righteous and judgmental and depressing, telling people how bad they are and how they have no redeeming value whatsoever. But the reality is that, that we are hopelessly ruined because of sin and we were originally made in God's image, created very good. And so David recognizes those two truths in tension, that we were created good, hopelessly lost in sin, when he says, God restores my soul. Because restoration means, like, t- restored, taken back to the factory settings, right? The original condition that it was in. So David says, God, rest- God does something in my heart that takes me from the person that I am, hopelessly lost in sin, and kind of restores me back to what I was, what I was created to be, how I was originally created. God works an act of restoration in my heart to, to bring me back to how, uh, what I was, what humanity originally was before sin ever entered into the world, right? God sees me in my sin as I am, but God restores me back to what I was created to be. And because of what Christ has done for us, right, God is able to restore us, forgive our sin, reconcile us to himself, back into a relationship with him, fill us with his Holy Spirit, and then slowly, progressively over time, conform us to the image of Christ as he restores us back to the very good image that humanity was originally created to to be. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters and he restores my soul. And he leads me in paths of righteousness. You might, you know, you, you might not hear that too often in the world. You might not hear that too often in some pockets of Christianity and Christian teaching, but the reality is God cares about our righteousness. God cares about our morality. God cares about whether or not we are living lives that are personally, morally upright. God wants his people to love him. God wants his people to love their neighbors. God wants his people to be good and kind and godly and and moral. And God leads his people in that direction, right? He doesn't say, here's a path of righteousness, choose it if you so desire. But he leads his people in paths of righteousness because he cares about whether or not their lives are marked by righteousness or by unrighteousness, right? We live in a culture that is decidedly not as concerned with personal morality and personal holiness as it has been in the 
the past. My guess is that if you ask 10 people at random, 9 out of 10 of them will feel that a person who is concerned with personal holiness, personal morality, personal piety, whether it's the language that you use, the, your thought life, your sex life, your, your, uh, your behavior towards others, right? Uh, you know, if, if you're uh, concerned about those kinds of things, personal matters of personal holiness, then 9 out of 10 people might say that's moralistic, that's self-righteous, you're, bas- you're just a, a Puritan, right? You're, you're some kind of regressive, fundamentalist person. But the reality is that God cares about we should we should never concern we should never confuse holiness which God loves and cares about with legalism right right it's it's uh, a lot of people will say a lot of people will uh, ha- have a sinful indifference to holiness because they've convinced themselves that they need to stay away from legalism and legalism is bad and wrong and we should avoid it but holiness righteousness is something that God cares deeply about and that God wants to lead us into. And here's why. Here's why God cares about his holiness. He leads David, he leads his people in paths of righteousness and holiness and personal morality and piety. God does that for his namesake, for the sake of his name. The reason why God cares about our righteousness and our holiness is because it affects, it actually affects has implications for the the sake of God's name, the the glory, God's name and how people understand and how they view and think about God. The glory that God receives is directly affected by and impacted by the righteousness and the holiness of God's people. So God wants us to be righteous for the sake of his name, for the sake of the glory of his name, for the sake of his reputation, for the sake of how people think of him and 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 you know what comes into their mind when they think about God God wants his name to be glorious and to be made famous and so God leads his people in the paths of righteousness so that his name will be famous and will be glorious our 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 initial tendency we all live we all see the world from our own perspective you can't I mean, I guess without a mirror, right? You can't see what you look like from someone else's point of view. You, I can see what you look like from my point of view. I can't see what I look like from your point. Right? We all reside in our own consciousness right here. So we have this innate, self-centered way of understanding reality. I'm at the center of my own existence. When I walk into a, you know, every, everything that I see and discern and experience, it's kind of from my own perspective. So... If you take that to the extreme, then you might tend to look at all of creation, all of human history from a self-centered perspective where the reason why God created me is because he needs me. He wants me to be like God. There's something lacking in God. And so he created humanity so that he could have a friend, so that he wouldn't be lonely. Right? God, there was something lacking about God and his existence before he created the world and before he created humanity, and then, and then humanity somehow met that need that God has. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God is, from eternity past to eternity future, God is 
inherently self-sufficient within himself. God resides within the confines of the, the Trinity. He has perfect community and love and relationship. And so when God creates humanity, it wasn't so that uh, he, he needed something from humanity. It was so that humanity could experience and enjoy the glory of God that was already existing in this self-sufficient Trinity for all of eternity. And then so humanity could then worship God in response to how good and great God is. But uh, the, the point of that is that everything in the world, all of existence, is not for our sake, for our joy, for our, you know, satisfaction or betterment. All of human history exists for God and for the glory of God and for the sake of God's name, right? God's n- name's sake is the reason why anything exists, is for the sake of God's name. God saves us for the sake of his name. So humanity, right, all of, all of human history and even uh, God having saved humanity is not for humanity in an ultimate sense. Uh, uh, it's, it's for humanity in a penultimate sense, meaning not the last thing, but the next to last thing. So the, the penultimate reason why God saves humanity is so that they can experience salvation. But then the ultimate reason why God saves humanity is so that God could be glorified in his having saved humanity. And so, so David says, God leads me in paths of righteousness. He cares about who I am and what I do and how I act. And the reason why he cares about those things is because when I act in accordance with how God has called me to act, it brings glory to God. His name is made famous. The sake of his name is, is exalted and kind of uh, made higher, which is what God ultimately desires from the, the world. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters, restores my soul. He leads me in righteousness for the sake of his name. And then in verse 4, there's a, there's a shift. Right? It's, it goes from third person speaking about God to second person speaking to God. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me, your rod and your staff comfort me. Suffering, right? The, the valley of the shadow of death. Are th- it's like three words that get progressively darker and scarier and more ominous as the sentence goes on. Right? The valley is the opposite of it's down deep in the middle of the mountains. Shadow is dark. You're vulnerable. You can't see. Death is, is scary. And so David is kind of tapping into just like innate, just biological fear, darkness, isolation, alone, danger, on the verge of death. And in the midst of this like deep, dark picture that's scary, David recognizes that God is good, God is glorious, and God takes care of his people. Even in, even in those moments where we feel like God has forgotten us, even in those moments where we think, this is so bad, this is so scary, this is so dangerous that the only way that I could find myself here is if God has somehow fallen asleep at the wheel, or God has somehow forgotten about me, or God doesn't care about me. That's the only way that I could be where I am right now in this dark, bad, scary situation. 
David says, even then, in those moments, God is, is real and God is good. Suffering is real. Persecution is, is real. Affliction is real. Sorrow is real. And God is good. Our, our theology needs to be able to account for Like, If your theology can't account for those two statements existing side by side, suffering is real, God is good, right? If our theology, our, our theology needs to be able to account for that, and if it can't, then when we suffer, we'll walk away from the faith. If I can't, if I can't believe that God is good in the midst of the suffering that I am experiencing or that I will experience, then we don't have a faith that's going to persevere through suffering and persecution. There, there are a lot of people who claim, I've met them, there are a lot of people who claim that God is good, and they'll continue to claim that God is good as long as their life is going exactly the way they want their life to go, as long as they have the job that they want, and they have the money and possessions and spouse and family there. As long as everything in their life looks exactly the way that they want it to look, they're happy to go around saying that God is good and I believe that God is good. But what about when our life doesn't go the way that we want? We have to bury a friend. When you lose your job, when your spouse leaves you, when you're diagnosed with a serious illness, right? In the, in the Christian life, there are valleys, there are shadows, there is death, right? These things are not possibilities. They're not hypotheticals or, you know, maybe these things will, will happen. These are inevitabilities. And so uh, if you only believe and can affirm that God is good when your life and when your circumstances are going the exact way that you want them to, that might be evidence that you, that, that you actually uh, love those things more than you love God. If you can only affirm that your life is good when you, if you can only affirm that God is good when you have the life that you want, it might be that the life that you want is what you're actually worshiping instead of the God who provides it for you. And so, it's absolutely true that God is our shepherd, that he leads us to green pastures, restores our soul, right? That's all true, and it's also true that we will walk through the valley of the shadow of death and experience suffering, and God is calling us to trust in him uh, in in the midst of it. And here's why, right? We can trust in God, we can, we can walk with God through the valley of the shadow of death because God is with us, right? David says, I can uh, walk through that valley without fear, right? It's not, it's not I will not fear because uh, I'm never going to suffer in the first place, or I will not fear because I know that God is going to remove me from that situation that's marked by suffering, He says, I'm not going to fear because even when I do suffer and even when I don't know how long that suffering is going to be prolonged, I can still persevere through that because David would rather be in the valley of the shadow of death with God than be living his perfect life, the picturesque life, 
without God. I will not fear in the midst of terrible suffering because God is with me and and being with God and near God is better than having a life that is free from suffering, right? God and intimacy with God is better than the absence of suffering. And if that's true, then that should inform how we pray, right? When we suffer, we shouldn't say, uh, God... uh, Get get me out of this. I, I don't want to be I don't want to be here, so get me out of this suffering. Rather, the, the Christian doesn't pray, uh, God change this part of my life and take it away, but rather get me through it. Right? Be with me in the midst of this suffering, right? No matter what, whether I'm suffering or not, right, whether this season ends or whether it doesn't end, be with me, stay with me. Take care, help me to experience your nearness even now in the midst of this suffering. Christians are people who suffer well because they are with God and God is with them in the midst of their suffering. Walk through the valley of the shadow of death and will fear no evil because you're with me and because your rod and your staff comfort me. which is an odd choice of words because a shepherd's rod and his staff are they're, they're disciplinary tools, right? They're, they're, um, they're tools that are used to ward off enemies and, and predators, right? Someone would attack the sheep, the shepherd would spring to action and take his rod or his staff and, and beat the predator away to keep it away from its, from its uh, you know, sheep. If a sheep would, I mean, the, the, the staff had, had a... a hook on the end of it, so if a sheep would wander into a territory where it wasn't supposed to go or to a place that was dangerous, he would kind of use the hook to, to pull the sheep back into where it needed to, to be. So it's a blunt object used to fight. It's, it's part, part blunt object used to fight and, and attack, part uh, lasso used to kind of pull back. And David says, I'm, I'm glad that God has that. The, the the fact that God has a rod and a staff and the fact that he will use it from time to time, that is a, is a fact that gives me comfort. I'm comforted by the fact that God has the ability and the willingness to discipline me when I need it, when he determines that it's appropriate for me to experience it. It's not... It's not, I take comfort in the reality that God owns the cattle in a thousand hills and he will give it to me uh, and, and, you know, I'll, I'll never want for anything. I mean, that, that's, that's true, right? That, that's true. It's just in another psalm, right? This is, this is David saying, I take comfort not in the fact that God will give me all the good things that I want. I take comfort in the fact that God has a disciplinary tool in his hand and that he is willing to use it on my enemies, or even on myself. That gives me comfort and gives me peace of mind. And again, just like, just like we said before, God's ability and willingness to discipline his people is bad news if, I, if, my, if my understanding is that my will is better than God's, my understanding of when I am when I should be disciplined and when I should not be is better than God's. But if God, if God's sovereign 
will is better than mine, then the fact that he can and does discipline his children is good news. Because he disciplines us out of love and for our, for our good. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, discipline is not pleasant, right? Being, uh, being on the receiving end of God's disciplinary rod and staff, David says they comfort me, but that, that's, a, a long-term, that's a long-term vision, right? Uh, discipline in the moment is not pleasant. It is inherently painful, and yet it kind of achieves uh, a, a, an end, a greater end eventually that is better, right? So it's true in our own, it's true in our lives right now. These 70, 80, 90 years that we have, it's true that God's hand of discipline is like a life where we experience God's painful discipline is better than a life where we don't. Right? We'll either, in this life, we will either experience the pain of discipline or we'll experience the pain of regret. Right? Either, either we will experience God's chastening and discipline that will form us and mold us into the person that God wants us to be, which as it turns out is the best life that we could have lived in the in the first place, or we will be at the mercy of our own selfish desires, allowing our sinful nature to run unchecked, right? Uh, destroying relationships and friendships and, and you know, uh, causing me to not be able to get along well with others because I'm constantly at the mercy of myself and my selfish desires. And so, so the, the discipline of God is painful in the moment, but it, it achieves, it accomplishes something that is good and, and enjoyable in the long run. That's just in this life, but it's also true in all of eternity, right? In, in, in all of eternity, you, you could live a life apart from God and apart from the disciplinary hand of God, right? You could, you could uh, choose to live a life where you, you, you don't have to walk the difficult uphill journey that is the, the life of Christian discipleship, but instead you walk the downhill journey of selfishness and self-gratification. The problem is that that journey ends in hell, separated from God forever, suffering under the wrath of God forever. Or you can experience the pain of God's discipline here in this life that then gives birth to uh, everlasting joy of being with God, reconciled to God, and in his presence forever. So, so God's rod and his staff, David says, those don't strike fear into my eyes. They are... They they are a, a comfort. It's, it's comfort food. The idea that God can and will discipline me gives me comfort because I know that God is sovereign. God's will is better than mine. God's plan is better than mine. And so I want him to use whatever means necessary, including discipline, to, to achieve his will, his purpose, his plan for my life. In verse 5. It says, You prepare... A table before me in the presence of my enemies. Which is, again, which is more kind of strange language. Prepare a table before me in the, right? Uh, 
if you, if someone challenges you to a fight and they, and you show up and you're about to fight and you've been like training, doing push-ups, getting ready to fight and he shows up and he is like eating a sandwich. He's probably like, that's probably evidence that like he is pretty confident in himself. He doesn't think that, he doesn't think that he's walking into a dangerous situation because he's, you're right, eating is not a defensive posture, right? When you eat food, you have to put, you can't, it takes your hands so you can't be holding weaponry. You have to like look at the food you're eating so you can't be scanning the horizon. If there's, if your soldiers go to war, there's the guy who's standing watch is not eating. And the people who are eating aren't standing, right? Those are two mutually exclusive categories. Eating, standing watch, preparing for battle, right? Eating is inherently, you're in a vulnerable position. And David says, God prepares a table. God, God invites me to uh, eat this feast that he has prepared for me, even in the presence of, like you can only eat in the presence of your enemies if you are not threatened by them, if you are not afraid of them, if you know and trust that God uh, is able to protect you from, from them. If you're, if you're, if you're, you know, if you're worried about your enemies and they're overtaking you, if you're, if you're worried about the threat that they cause to you, you're not going to be eating at that moment. And David says, God spreads out this feast for me to eat and I can eat it and I can trust that he will protect me and take care of me in it uh, so much so that I can let my guard down and trust that God is, is watching and protecting and taking care of, of me in that, in that moment. I can eat and I can enjoy God's presence because I can know that God is more concerned with and he is more able to defeat and overcome my enemies than, than I am. My enemies of Satan and sin and death, these are enemies that pose very serious and grave and real threats to me, and yet I can rest knowing that God uh, is going to defeat them on my behalf uh, instead of instead of thinking that I need to be the one who defeats all of my enemies myself so I can never eat, I can never relax, I can never enjoy God's presence because I constantly have to be on guard against uh, the, these, these enemies. The Christian is someone who rests in the security of knowing that God defeats their enemies for them. So you prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. In the Old Testament, uh, there were three uh, offices that, that someone was anointed to kind of be commissioned into and installed in those offices, that of prophet, priest, and, and king. Prophets were anointed for their prophetic ministry of proclaiming the word of God. Priests were anointed for their priestly ministry of offering sacrifices and mediating between God and man. And kings were anointed for their kingly ministry of, of leading and shepherding and looking after the people of, of God. David was a king, so this fits with this, with, this image, with this imagery. David was anointed to be the king. So what's interesting, though, is that, that all three of these offices and the, the respective anointing that came with them all give us perspective into the person and work of Jesus. Right? Jesus holds all three of those offices of prophet, priest, and king all at the same time. Right? Deuteronomy 18 tells us that, that God would eventually raise up a prophet like Moses, speaking of Jesus. Right? Jesus 
says uh, a prophet is honored uh, everywhere that he goes except in his hometown, implying I'm a prophet and here I am in my hometown and I'm not being uh, honored. Jesus was a priest. The entire book of Hebrews is about the priestly office and ministry of Jesus and how he offers a better sacrifice that inaugurates a better covenant for God's people. So Jesus is a prophet and a priest and of course Jesus is a king. He will rule from the throne Uh, of God in eternity forever and ever. Prophet, priest, and king, all of those three uh, ministries that Jesus was anointed for are kind of bound up in his office of the Messiah or the the Christ, the, the anointed one. And so when David says, God anoints my head with oil, my cup overflows, he's saying, I've been anointed, uh, over the people of God as their king and, uh, he's kind of, it's a, it's a subtle nod to the second David, the Davidic king, the, the, the next, the, the, the final David to whom the original David points, saying, I've been anointed as God's king, but Jesus, the true Messiah, the ultimate coming king, is going to be anointed as prophet and priest and, and king. The shepherd king who would defeat Satan and sin and death and then impute his victory to the people of God who trust in, in him. All of that theology, all of that Christology about who Jesus is and how, what he fulfills in his office as Messiah is all kind of bound up in this fifth verse. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Then he says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. So for the entirety of my life, God's goodness, God's love, God's mercy will be tethered to God. God cannot, he will not, he does not lose his children, right? God does not fail to love and care for and be with his, his people. God has invited me into his presence and I will never, uh, you know, be forsaken by him. But that doesn't just last with me all the days of my life. It also uh, is with me uh, for all of eternity as I dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so there's this view of, of this life right here in this world and all of eternity forever and ever. Both of those are in view, right? The Christian life is not, uh, the, the Christian worldview, the Christian theological system is not one that neglects this life for the sake of the next life, nor is it one that neglects the next life for the sake of this life, right? There are some Christians that are all about the next life, not about this life, and so they, uh, you know, are under the impression that, you know, Christians are all going to be evacuated out of this world, out of this life to some other place, some, you know, you know, place in the cl- floating in the clouds with halos that are with with yeah halos and angels that look like babies playing harps or whatever it is, and so you kind of it it makes you de-emphasize or under-emphasize this life right here right now justice for the oppressed and the marginalized care for God's creation beauty art work vocation whatever it is right there are all of these things about this life that God cares about. And so God doesn't want us to neglect those or disregard those for the sake of some eternity that we will experience somewhere else. The reality is eternity is going to be spent right here on heaven, on earth, the new heavens and the new earth, 
with God, right? Heaven is, is a renewed and redeemed world that we will live with God in and, and on. And so the Christian worldview is not one that neglects this life for the sake of the next, nor is it one that neglects the next life for the sake of this one. There's Christians that do that too, right? That are more concerned with redeeming culture or working for social justice or, you know, building schools or wells or whatever, all of which is good. But if that's, if that's all that you care about and you never uh, call someone to repentance, call them to trust in Jesus so that their soul can be reconciled to God so that they can experience eternity in heaven with God, you've done them a disservice. So this life matters, right? Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and eternity matters. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Both things are are true. There's a sense in which God is currently establishing his kingdom through the ministry of the church and the proclamation of the gospel. And there's a sense in which God will in the future establish his kingdom when he returns to establish the new heavens and the new earth. Kind of an attention, attention that theologians call the already and the not yet. John 5, Jesus says, an hour is coming in the future and is now here in the present when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So is it that, that a time is coming in the future when dead people will be raised up out of the grave? Or is it that the time is here right now when dead people will hear the Son of God and they will hear and live? And it's, they're both true. There's a sense in which at, at present right now, as the gospel is proclaimed, dead people hear the gospel and they are resurrected to newness of life and there's a sense in which at the end of, at the, end of the age, right, at the, at the day of the Lord, dead people in the grave will hear the voice of the Son of God and they will get up out of the grave and be resurrected to eternal life. And so both are true. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life because it matters, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever for all of, for all of eternity. Psalm 23, God is our Shepherd, He looks after us. He takes care of us. He protects us. He provides for us. He does so for our good, but also for his own glory, for the sake of his own name. Suffering is real and inevitable. Christians will walk through it and should expect to do so, but God will be with us in the midst of our suffering. He will help us to persevere through it. And in view of all of that, God calls us to trust him, to live with him and worship him and enjoy him both now in this life, in this world, and in eternity, in the life to come. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, it is a great privilege to be able to call you our shepherd, our father, our king. Lord, we thank you that you provide for us, that you lead us, that you are always with us. We thank you, Lord, that that we can trust in you and hold fast to you and walk with you. We pray that you would help us to do so. We pray that you would help us to repent of our sin and trust in Christ for your glory and for our joy. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.